Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. So here we are in 2023 with Trump, who throughout his presidency seemed strangely enthralled to Putin, the leading candidate again for the Republican Party nomination. He already has made clear that he would overhaul the U.S.'s pro-Ukraine policies. And given his apparent admiration for Putin, who knows what a second Trump term might augur for NATO. Even if it were simply a matter of history, which it isn't, it would be exigent to understand as best we can the gaping questions about Trump's pre-presidential relationship with Russia and whether he was and remains to this day in some way vulnerable to Putin's whims. To try to get our hands around the topic, we have the great leg up of the in-depth investigative work done by special counsel Robert Mueller and his staff, although their lookout was not, for the most part, Trump's convoluted business interests. And we have reporters who have doggedly pursued the story, even as the country seems largely to have left it behind. We have the best of both groups here today, and it's a pleasure to welcome Adam Davidson, a former staff writer at The New Yorker, where he covered Trump's business dealings in the former Soviet Union and wrote the financial page column. He was also a columnist and a contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine and co-founded NPR's Planet Money after serving as the international business and economics correspondent for NPR. Adam, thanks very much for joining. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Jeannie Ree, a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Paul Weiss. She worked for Robert Mueller's special counsel's office, where she led the team investigating Russian cyber, social media, and intelligence efforts to influence the 2016 presidential election. Jeannie's team was responsible for the two Russia-related indictments, the prosecution of Trump associate Roger Stone, and the guilty pleas of attorney Michael Cohen and campaign advisor George Papadopoulos. Jeannie, thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. And our very good friend, Andrew Weissman, a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law, the co-host of the podcast, Prosecuting Trump, the incandescently popular podcast, I should say, and a frequent media contributor. But he also was a lead prosecutor, as most everyone knows, in Mueller's office and oversaw in particular the prosecution of Paul Manafort, among other cases, which took him into the Russian miasma frequently. He previously held a variety of high-level positions in the department, including chief of the fraud section and general counsel for the FBI. Andrew Weissman, thank you so much for joining. Glad to be here. Adam, I wanted to ask you to frame the discussion. You've written several articles with detailed reporting on possibly suspicious business activity with entities in Russia and its ambit on Trump's part. I'm thinking in particular of your 2018 article, A Theory of Trump's Compromat. Could you just kind of, at a 30,000-foot level, lay out that theory and maybe what compromat or the related term of systema, if I'm pronouncing it right, is about, and just give us the basic business strategy that, as you see it, Trump pursued with oligarchs in and around Russia? 
Sure. So to put the broader context, a bunch of things come together in about 2010. The forces are there before 2010. But you have, on the one hand, unimaginable capital flight out of Russia and other former Soviet states. So the estimates, this is a lot of it is hidden money, laundered money, but you're talking about trillions of dollars. By some estimates, half the wealth of the former Soviet Union is flooding out of the former Soviet Union disproportionately into London, New York, Miami, a few locations. Unimaginable amounts of money, huge transfer of wealth. Some of it is legal in every sense of the word. A lot of it is kind of sketchy, not entirely clear. And some of it is just out and out organized crime, corruption. Why would any of it have been legal? I'm being generous. So you have huge amounts of money coming out. And anyone who's interested, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCRP.org, has done amazing work really ripping apart some of the mechanisms to launder this money out of the former Soviet Union, the Azerbaijan laundromat stories, the Russia laundromat stories. And it really gets into really amazing detail. And it pollutes so much of European and American economy, soccer, real estate, I mean, on and on. So in this flood of money comes the Trump Organization, which by 2010 is in a lot of trouble. It's big money opportunities, particularly the Apprentice TV show, is kind of outlived its peak. Trump is really a laughingstock in, in New York. It's, he's finding it almost impossible to raise money to do projects. People don't find his brand particularly attractive. And so you you see, starting in the 90s, but really picking up 2008, 2009, 2010, the Trump Organization really pivots towards selling licensing to essentially projects that bear all the hallmarks of money laundering by oligarchs in the former Soviet Union, as well as other places. There's suspicious projects in India and Indonesia. There's projects in Soho in New York, but the money seems to have come from Kazakhstan, etc. Give us sort of one core example of what seems like money laundering. The example that to me is by far the most striking is his project in Azerbaijan. I'll try and go through it quickly. You have the Mamadov family, the father, Zia Mamadov, is the transportation minister of Azerbaijan, a guy who's never had a job that paid more than $26,000 a year, and he's has hundreds of millions of dollars. We know from the OCCRP reporting, he is funneling hundreds of millions out of the country. He creates this project that any investigator, and Andrew and Jeannie know this world much better than I do, but anyone who's looked at money laundering, this is almost laughingly a money laundering project. It's going to be an, a residential tower, then it's going to be a hotel, then it's going to be a residential tower. They keep paying for lots of construction without any construction getting done. They're literally paying contractors with duffel bags filled with cash. We have that from direct reporting. Mamadov, he's a oligarch who is on the outs with the son of the president, well, the new president of Azerbaijan. He needs to get money out in a hurry. He sends his son to America to find partners to do business with. He only finds two, weirdly. One is National Geographic, oddly. The other is Trump. And so Trump agrees to put his name on the Trump Tower Baku. It's a project that Ivanka really is the lead on. She goes to Baku. She spends a lot of time. She actually personally requests that they eliminate an entire working class neighborhood that's next to the tower so that she can have a park there. I met some of the people who lost their homes when I visited Baku. The hotel 
it keeps getting built and rebuilt and built again and rebuilt again, never opens, still hasn't opened. That's bad enough, but we know from some cables that were released in the WikiLeaks dump that this guy Mamadov at the same time is seen by the US government as almost certainly a money laundering partner of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And I won't bore you with all the details, although it's all public, but he's working with a company that clearly seems to be a front for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard sanctioned construction company, Hatam El Anbiya. But what's most important is the Trump organization knows this. This is what I want to land on. By 2015, they acknowledge, A, that they know this is almost certainly a money laundering operation for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and it's just one of many deals. They acknowledge it how, that they know this? David Korn and Mother Jones asks them, and they say yes, and then they acknowledge it to me personally, the general counsel, Alan Garten. Let me give two standing objections, as the lawyers say, which is that the Mueller folks were looking at different things specifically, and that second, to the extent they stumbled across things that didn't become in the public record, Andrew and Jeannie are not going to risk Robert Mueller's ire or otherwise acting properly. So it's 2015. You are, so you do come on the scene pretty shortly thereafter. My first question is whether, as you've heard, Adam lay out these basic business dealings. Is this stuff all new? Did the Mueller report publicly have any intersection with this part of the Trump world? Or do you come to this the same way any sort of listener like I come to it? What's obviously in the public domain is, is that the scope of the remit, right, by order of Rod Rosenstein et al., is that the four corners of the special counsel's remit, right, is very tightly scripted and banded. And the broad sweep of what Adam just articulated was not within the remit. Trump Tower Moscow only came within purview circuitously, right? And you saw the way in which it ended up really circuitously in the Mueller report by way of the chapters that touched upon Michael Cohen. So the really broad contours of what Adam articulated was not within the purview of the special counsel's investigation. Which was focused very much on the sort of campaign itself, yes, but also the Michael Cohen project that is in the report, it's not in the report in this kind of way, right? It's more campaign-driven. Yeah, not even close. But nevertheless, so Andrew, former chief of the fraud section, Adam hazards the opinion that this would be classic money laundering. You've probably done cases like this or come bumped up against sort of international businesses that seem to be doing money laundering. They're really hard cases to make, is my sense. Can you speak to how the department would react to this kind of information if they received it? Any case that comes to the department with foreign evidence with not an obvious way to get those documents because they may not be available through an MLAT, in other words, through a mutual legal assistance treaty, could be complicated absent a cooperating witness, somebody who has has documents and the access to them. So that that does pose a problem. 
There are some other ways you could, the cooperating witness could be a company that's doing business in the United States, somebody you have leverage over that can get you documents. Uh, but that's basically the problem with overseas crimes. It poses challenges, but they're more or less insurmountable on a case-by-case basis. Those are things that the fraud section at the Department of Justice, what used to be called AFMELs, the Asset Forfeiture and Money Laundering Section, who knows what the hell they call themselves these days because they seem to change their name. You're dating yourself, Andrew. <laughs> Government and acronyms, yeah. yeah. MLRs. <laughs> MLRs, unless they, you know, they've moved the deck chairs around. And then obviously certain U.S. attorney's offices have robust white collar groups. Yeah, Pittsburgh did a lot, I know, with uh, China under Dave Hickton. The fraud section certainly did those cases, but and sometimes on, you know, on their own without a cooperating company and more often than not with a cooperating company that is reporting something for various reasons. There are a lot of carrots that have been sticks that have been implemented to try and encourage that kind of behavior. It's a little harder when you deal with a corrupt foreign government, corrupt individuals, and perhaps people in America who are not part of a regulated industry. It can be harder. And then I have one, since I only tell anecdotes in lieu of giving actual educated responses. Um, <laughs> here's my anecdote, which actually I think is relevant, which maybe makes it differ from most of my anecdotes, which is one of my cooperators years ago in the Eastern District of New York was a short seller, a huge short seller. And he pled guilty. He was cooperating. And I was asking him one day, like, what he was planning on doing when he finished doing his jail time and got out, like, how he was going to support himself. And he said, uh, and he was in New York, and he said, oh, I'm just going to go into real estate. Um, and I was like, why? And he goes, well, because it's not regulated. <laughs> I'll say as a former prosecutor, the occasion when they came up to actually have discussions with somebody you just prosecuted was, like, among the most enjoyable moments. It's a whole other episode, but... Very quickly, a, a sort of brilliant genius art forger, you know, I prosecuted put away and I, and I had occasion to see him. I said, you know, why'd you do it? And he said, you know, the nine to five thing, it's just not for me. <laughs> this a little bit far field and Adam, I'll come right back to you. But look, given what Andrews just said, it raises the point. You brought a case against 20 Russians that in some way was quixotic. You didn't necessarily expect to hail them into court and see them in U.S. prisons. What was your reasoning for what is not the routine? Well, it depends on which one you're talking about. (laughs) There are two sets of different Russians who we brought indictments against, and they're related theories of bringing the prosecutions. One included both Concord and Prigozhin. And back in the day, those were not household names. And now... Still not household names. <laughs> they're household names. <laughs> it depends on the household. Yeah, in this household. <laughs> I would beg to differ. Um, and I stand by the need to bring those names to the fore and to shine a light. And, you know, actually the same theory holds with respect to the other set of names, because actually, even with respect to the GRU actors, 
those names keep popping up over and over again, because in fact, they're GRU soldiers, and they keep popping up in, you know, different subsequent indictments, because they have a job to do, and they keep doing it. And there is a real value to demonstrating the ways in which cyber crimes are the new normal and the way that nation states now perpetuate attacks against other nation states. This is the way in which modern warfare is conducted. Jeannie's being a little characteristically modest because the two Russian indictments that she brought were, to my mind, by far and away the most important and also the most difficult cases that we did. And sort of to your first question, I mean, they were about how to bring these cases. It took an extraordinary leader, which Jeannie led that team, and an, ex- an extraordinary team that she built. Team R, is that right? Team R, which I know this is the part where we didn't really do too well on the acronyms because R stood for, wait for it, Russia. <laughs> Got it. In the same way that Team M, can you guess? Oh, I know this one. I know this yeah. one. Well, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So in addition to really putting together the most important, but also incredibly complex cases to investigate, I still remember Jeannie saying to me, without denigrating the sort of name and shame cases. What are name and shame cases? Name and shame cases are cases where you indict, where you don't have a real prospect that those people are going to come here. Because normally, if you you wouldn't actually unseal that. If you thought they might come here and you, or go to a country with an extradition treaty, you would keep those under seal. And then you nab the person when they went to a location where they could be extradited. The concern was to not just do that, but to charge it in a way that there, there could actually be a trial in the United States with evidence that's disclosed and the public can see, which was sort of in keeping with our general view of getting information into the public record in court, which is, as one of the judges there said, is a place where facts and law still matter. That was really embodied by those two indictments and the work that Jeannie led. Okay, great. But then to state the obvious contrast, that light has not to date been shown except through journalism, not by the Department of Justice through, for example, a money laundering or FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act investigation. So, And now let me go back to you, Adam, and pick up with the Compromat slash Sistema part of the equation. So what you've laid out and what your many articles lay out is are not simply crimes with their attendant evils in any event, like circumventing the financial system and the like, but ones that potentially get our at least antenna buzzing about larger security risks for the country. So maybe we can move to your sense of why, you know, you've called this a theory of compromise and what are the worries here? Absolutely. And I would say I have enormous respect for Jeannie and Andrew and for you, Harry, but, and, and so I don't, (laughs) I don't That's, want this to be always a, that always is followed by but it's <laughs> but come up you're but. a bunch of idiots. No, no, but um <laughs> but this would be my if I were in the meeting, if for some reason the Mueller team decided to hire a non-lawyer who doesn't know anything about law, 
my pitch for, no, no, this is central to the investigation. This is not outside the remit. This is the only way to get after the remit. It would go something like this, that there is a very well-established, through enormous number of legal cases, as well as scholarly work, as well as first-person confession, et cetera, that, and Prigozhin is a particularly telling example of this, that the way elite wealth in the former Soviet Union is indistinguishable from political power, and that basically anyone who's doing anything that's making real money is at a minimum being carefully monitored and recorded. This goes back to the Soviet Union. There are people who have found the KGB and FSU and GRU you know, folders, buildings filled with folders, filled with information about every business person. So in my sense, in 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, as Trump and his children are making these frequent trips to Russia and the former Soviet Union, they are seen as third tier. They are not dealing with Putin's inner circle, but they are definitely dealing with people who would have been reporting up through a chain of command that would have gotten into Putin's office, such as Mamadov, such as the people in, in Georgia, his Kazakh partner, Yurkin Tatashev, who was whose wealth was actually controlled by the son-in-law, Nasser Kulabayev, the son-in-law of the leader of Kazakhstan, who had his own personal ties with Putin. And this thing that people in Russia, some people in Russia call the sistema, it's a system where wealth is allocated conditionally and that there is a carrot and a stick. The carrot is you get to make a lot of money. The stick is ultimately Putin, but basically the Kremlin knows everything you've done, is carefully monitoring anything you've done that's at all sketchy, that's at all actionable. And if at any point you make decisions that go against the interest of the Kremlin, we will crush you. So in this context, compromise, yes, it can be weird sex stuff. That's a one application of compromise. But to someone like Trump and to many of the other people we're talking about, where wealth, money is the key, it's information about how they made money. It's information that could mean they lose money. So in my view, the reporting I've done and others have done, I could give a list of other great reporters, David Farenthold, Andrea Bernstein, on and on, have done great reporting as well. There's real fire. I mean, there are real, whether they could actually pragmatically be prosecuted without getting you know, subpoena power in Tehran and Azerbaijan is a separate question. But there's real fire. But there's a lot more smoke than the fire we know about, that there's a lot of evidence that Trump was engaging in a whole host of things. So I could spend several hours alone on Iran. He was dealing, he wasn't just dealing with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in his deal. He was dealing with specifically the people who were sourcing missile guidance systems for WMD missiles. This is not me guessing. This is me reporting it in The New Yorker, fact-checking in The New Yorker, the Trump organization saying they can't find a factual error. At least two lawyers that I knew of really tried to build a lawsuit against me. It did not work. This is solid, solid stuff. So a DOJ prosecutor cannot go to Tehran and Baku and Moscow and get the paperwork but you know who can? The FSB, the Iranian intelligence, etc. So my theory of the case is that if you want to understand how someone like Putin would have influence on someone like Trump, this is the heart of how that would happen. And it happens all day, every day. We just saw it with Prigozhin. We just saw it in a case where 
Putin turned a hot dog salesman into an international warlord and then tried, in the case of Prigozhin, it's actually weird because Prigozhin actually attained more power than people usually do, but Khodorkovsky and, you know, the list goes on and on and on of the number of business people. This is the bread and butter. So if you go into the Kremlin and say, hey, I really want to influence this presidential election in America. You have to get a bunch of people to brainstorm, come up with new ideas, try and figure out new ways of working. If you go into the Kremlin and say, hey, by the way, the guy who's about to become president of the United States has been doing business in Azerbaijan, in Georgia, in Kazakhstan, in Moscow with some super sketchy dudes, the Kremlin's like, oh, that's our playbook. We've been doing this for decades. We know exactly how to influence a guy like that. So to me, that would be the passionate argument I would make in the office to say, I don't care what Rod Rosenstein says, this is the way to do it. This is the only way to fulfill that remit. Well, therein lies your problem. Therein <laughs> lies your problem. You don't get to say, I don't care what Rod Rosenstein says. <laughs> Adam gets to say it, but the special counsel doesn't get to say it. But still, this is not, you know, what you investigated and for criminal conduct, something that's far afield. But there are connections. And let me start here. I have like 16 follow-ups, Adam. But Jeannie, it's clear from the report that the Russian government really wanted Trump to win. And not simply, if, as I understand it, I think this is public record, vis-a-vis Hillary Clinton, which would be a pretty obvious differential for them. But back in 2015, when he was mowing down one after another Republican competitor, do we have a sense of why they wanted this guy as their horse from early on? Look, there was pretty early, I mean, and this is laid out in the report. I mean, there was definitely an anti-Clinton preference articulated. There was a general sentiment to sow discord. But the minute that Trump entered his hat in the ring. There was a coalescing around a, a thumb on the scale to coalesce around support for Trump as a candidate. Just to put a little flesh on that, I mean, so in the one of the indictments that Jeannie and her team had presented to the grand jury, you can see the efforts that are made by the Russian disinformation group led by Prigozhin in terms of having that sort of promotion of the Trump candidacy during the nomination process and then obviously during the general. It's also worth noting that with respect to Hillary Clinton, I'm not sure people are quite aware enough that Hillary was, I think, and probably to this day, is was quite hawkish as in, on foreign policy, very aligned with John McCain in terms of their view of Ukraine and being pro-Ukraine at a time they were very much understood the importance of Ukraine to NATO and the United States and were very strongly supportive and that were very aware of what Putin was up to and who they were dealing with. It's just important to know there's a natural reason for Putin to be sort of virulently against her becoming president because of how she would have treated Russia. It doesn't explain why Trump versus other people who might have been less so, but it is important to know that the 
Hillary view was shared by Republican orthodoxy at the time. It's important to remember that because it shifted so much, although you still can see it now in the general support for the Ukraine war that the sort of mainstream Republicans and Hillary Clinton's view were completely aligned. Yeah. And so that doesn't seem mysterious to me that they would be strongly pro. But I do want to focus on the other point. And we're not talking, there were what, 15 of them. And Trump, at least at first, maybe they knew more than we did, didn't seem so obvious. Adam has a theory. And he just sketched it out. And uh, we'll get back to him in a second. But does either of you have a comment on this theory of, you know, why Russia was bullish on Trump in particular among the Republican candidates from the start? I have two comments that don't in any way relate to the Mueller investigation and that are just in looking at the public evidence. I always thought that the theory that the so-called compromise was going to involve some sexual activity by the former president seemed... I mean, I don't know whether it happened or didn't happen or whether you're meaning whether there's compromise on that or not, but it just didn't strike me as the kind of thing that would be compromise and because it didn't seem like it would move the needle. You don't see the the brag criminal indictment moving the needle. The second is I was always this is like pure speculation, but I always wanted to know the answer to why the former president knew about the FCPA statute before 2016, because he had publicly come out saying that he was against it. And then In 2012. Yeah. And then Rex Tillerson reported, at least, that he was asked when he was secretary of state by then President Trump to essentially kill the statute. I'm sort of paraphrasing, and it had to be explained by Mr. Tillerson to Mr. Trump that it's a congressional statute, so it's not something the Secretary of State can just kill. But I always was just wondering how that came up and how he would know about it. And of course, he was very against the FCPA, which in the FCPA, just for people who know, is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It's the statute that was under my bailiwick as the fraud section chief, and it forbids American companies as well as certain other companies from bribing to get foreign contracts. That's just a question I had. I think I can provide some a little bit of clarity on that. It was such a concern that the way they structured their deals overseas was essentially reverse engineering the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And I mean, you can, you've can you met some of the people who are Trump's lawyers. We're not talking about like the most sophisticated international lawyers that any of you have ever met. And they really knew FCPA cold. And the deal structures were designed around FCPA. And to me, there's a, a first pass explanation, which is the bulk of their money was on government land, it was expropriating government wealth to flow. And as the Trump legal team kept saying to me again and again, we worked out the flow. The flow doesn't come from us to them. It goes from them to us. So they engineered a deal where they would participate in a fundamentally corrupt by the FCPA definition project, but they themselves wouldn't violate the letter of the law of FCPA. 
Adam, isn't that structure where they basically license their name and dot money something that they did they do in the United States, for instance? In others, what's so different about the structure you're describing and what they do in the United States? Because if I were look, if you were presenting that to me as a prosecutor or like you know the FBI agents who do on the FCPA squad, that would be sort of a natural question about why is that so different than what they would do in a case where the FCPA statute doesn't apply. And I'll just interject the feature that you've mentioned about the outlay of cash and the Trump change of conduct, which which maybe figures in this answer. My point is not that they would structure the deals differently. It's that they understood how to structure a deal to avoid the FCPA. That's the point I'm making, that they were extremely concerned about it. Although I'm trying to think of comparable deals in the U.S. because they really avoided equity skin in the game overseas, which I think was deliberate. Just to play devil's advocate, Adam, the counter argument would be just saying hypothetically in a period in which they were arguably just cash strapped, right? They were just trying to avoid equity skin in all game, right? That is possible. Why they just pivoted to licensing so that there was no equity So they would have three deals with each deal. So there would be a licensing deal, just you get to use the Trump name. There'd be a design and build kind of deal where they would help shape the overall project. And then there'd be an ongoing management deal. And that, you know, if you go to Ritz-Carlton, Four Seasons, whatever, they're doing the same three deals, but they're really focusing on the long-term payout of the management Ritz-Carlton loses money the day it signs a deal and then makes the money if the property is successful over 10 or 20 years, whereas the Trump organization makes 90-something percent of the money on the first day. That wasn't the case with their U.S. deals, like the post office as the biggest example. That ended up actually being unsuccessful. So it could be, you're right, Jeannie, it just happened to coincide with a time where they were so cash-strapped that they were desperate for it, but who was willing to give them the amount of money Trump got up front would be like $5 million. If you went, if Ritz-Carlton Four Seasons, far better brands, they would get maybe 300000 400000 They get a tenth or less the amount of money up front. So why are they able to do business with people who are willing to pay this obscene upfront cost, not have the long-term deal? It's the same three types of deals, but the way the deals are structured are clearly, we're going to make all the money we're going to make the day we sign this deal, and we'll probably never see you again, <laughs> you know, which speaks to the recognition we're not building an ongoing business. So that's different from SCPA. I'm now getting more into money laundering. And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hi. I'm Maribel Hernandez-Rivera, a Deputy National Political Director at the ACLU. The promise of America is to serve as a beacon of hope and freedom for people fleeing persecution, violence, war, and human rights violations around the world. Yet, the Biden administration has chosen to replicate harmful and illegal Trump-era policies that ban people from seeking asylum at the southern border, betraying the ideals that represent the best of our country. Biden's asylum ban is causing needless suffering and placing people at grave risk. The ACLU successfully sued the Trump administration when it implemented asylum bans. And now we're suing the Biden administration over their own ban. 
For more on how the ACLU is fighting for the rights of asylum seekers, go to ACLU.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we dig up the dirt on the agave plant to find out the difference between tequila and mezcal. So first things first. Tequila is a type of mezcal, much like bourbon is a type of whiskey. In general, tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequilas. Allow me to explain. Tequila can only come from the blue agave plant in specific regions of Mexico, like the region of Jalisco, where the city of tequila is located. No coincidence there. Mezcal, however, can be made from many varieties of agave, specifically from the heart of the agave, known as the piña. The distillery process for tequila and mezcal is also different. Tequila is produced by steaming the blue agave and then distilling it in copper stills for a toasty, clean taste. On the other hand, mezcal, which appropriately means oven-cooked agave, is cooked in earthen pits with wood and charcoal before being distilled in clay pots. No wonder mezcal, which is typically consumed straight, has more of a smoky, earthy taste Of course, the best way to get to know the differences between tequila and mezcal is to pick up a bottle of each from your Total Wine & More and pour hundreds of years of tradition right into your glass. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. I do want to get to where do things stand now and what would need to be done to really plumb the depths. I just had one sort of factual question for you, Adam, but for anyone... In what you're positing that there is this sistema where as long as he's dealing with people in Putin's ambit, Putin has the possibility of influencing him, how would Trump himself, not the most sophisticated and reflective guy out there and usually, you know, just runs for the money, whatever it is, how would he come to understand, wow, this is my position, they've got leverage on me and I need to play it carefully. How would that even be communicated? I've talked to a bunch of people, both former CIA officials, others who monitored Sistema, how the Soviet Union worked or former Soviet Union worked, and then also a few participants, including some in Trump's inner circle, and then read a lot. And what I was told is compromise best practices is I don't come to you and say, let me give you the full list of particulars that I have against you, because it's much more impactful to hint at or to create an ongoing need. So it's more, hey, Harry, we sure had a lot of fun in Vegas that weekend. Kathy says hi, you know, that kind of thing. Who are you in this hypothetical? I get to be Donald Trump, I guess. Who uh, who are you? I mean, in this particular case, I think it's take your pick. It would normally- Oh, Manafort, maybe? Yeah, it could be Manafort. It could be, I mean, Jeannie and Andrew have a, have a long list of people who could do it. It could be, I don't want to accuse anyone of anything, but Jared certainly knows a lot of the same characters. You know, Felix Sater certainly presents himself as somebody who's, who's really plugged in here and there. There's a list of dozens and dozens of folks. The other piece, though, if I were king of the world and got to give myself special counsel powers, the thing I would want to see is, what does Trump own now? Where did the money come from? 
and what obligations, what debts, et cetera. So to make my point explicit, in 2010, we already described former Soviet Union, money is pouring out like crazy. One particularly attractive way to pour money out is into very expensive golf courses. This is well-established. And particularly the Mamata family, the Aguilara family are doing this. Trump's business practices completely change. And Jeannie, this goes to the point of being cash-strapped exactly at the moment when they should do the opposite. He suddenly goes from a guy who famously spends other people's money to a guy who is spending hundreds of millions of dollars, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, hundreds of millions of dollars. He buys the complete white elephant of the Turnberry golf course. He's the only guy who'll buy it. Nobody wants it for 20 million pounds. He pays 32 million pounds and then puts another 150 million pounds into it. He had already owned Aberdeen, but he spends 50 million pounds on a golf course that could never in a million years pay that back. D the Doral project in the US, he's pouring you know, 250 million. We know half of that came from Deutsche Bank. So this is a guy who's never spent this kind of money, spending it in a way that the only possible payback is if this is wildly successful beyond his lifetime. I mean, that was the official case they were making, is we're going to create a long-term high-value brand, an international brand of golf. But even their plan was decades in the making. So it's a very simple thing. 2010, he meets a bunch of sketchy oligarchs who are funneling money out of the former Soviet Union through golf. 2010, he fundamentally shifts how he does business towards going from desperately needing short amounts of money to spending hundreds of millions of dollars. But weirdly, he's also exhibiting signs of a guy who's completely illiquid and is desperate for a few hundred thousand here, a few million there. To me, we're now into circumstantial, I will admit, but a very tellingly, interestingly circumstantial case of a guy who really deserves a full forensic accounting of where did his money come from, who owns what, where did it go, because the story he's telling for sure doesn't make sense. We've heard people like Don Jr. say, oh, we got all the money from Russia. So that would be my case. Let's reopen. <laughs> Let's reopen the investigation. Let's get people with subpoena power. And Scotland and Ireland might be easier, and Florida certainly would be easier than Azerbaijan and Georgia. What would need to happen to really get to the bottom of it? And do you have an, a, an opinion if we'll ever know the full truth of his you know, potential relationship and vulnerability to Russia? If I could ask all three of you to give your thoughts about that. Well, I don't know if we're ever going to know. As Jeannie said, it wasn't in our remit from Rod Rosenstein. And is there the possibility that somebody as a result of the existing and imminent, to use a loaded term, <laughs> indictments could flip who has that information. That's possible. You know, I wouldn't hold my breath, but that's possible. Is it possible that the IRS at the federal level will finally do their job and get to the bottom of this? I'd say that's even less that's possible. possible. <laughs> and we're out of the statute, aren't we? It's unclear whether it's a continuing offense and that would extend it. And it's also unclear whether there was a tolling of the statute kind of appropriately. It's because of the nature of the investigation. It's behind a curtain. So we don't know what's going on there, but it doesn't appear to be any movement. And we've certainly heard things along the lines of 
it's too hard. So we're not going to do it. I remember being on AR and commenting. So the moral of that story is if you're going to commit a tax offense, go big because it's more challenging. So they won't look at it, which is not, you know, that's not exactly your ideal law enforcement response to that. But again, that may be very unfair, you know, because I don't have insight, but you can sort of look and see that nothing's happened, but there may be reasons that are legitimate. I do have some questions just because if you think about the Manhattan case against Michael Cohen, against Alan Weisselberg, the Trump organization, what was very, very unusual is that they actually, at the state level, said there was a federal crime here, a federal tax crime, which is very unusual to call that out and then to not see any follow-up. Is that another possibility? I'd say remote, but that's possible. So I don't know that we're ever going to have that. I just do want to say one other thing, and I'm not saying that this doesn't present factual predication, but just to channel for a moment what the department says about when they investigate, which is one of the things that, for instance, that you, you're taught at the FBI was the internal diog rules that are advanced by the Department of Justice and promulgated. And that is that you're not allowed to just start looking at any American citizen or anyone else just because you think it might be of interest. There has to be predication. And the more intrusive the steps are, the more factual predication there has to be. And that is to protect our civil liberties. And again, I'm not getting into the allocation of this, but you know, we saw that, for instance, that was one of the critiques of John Durham, where there was a dispute between John Durham and the inspector general as to whether there was factual predication with respect to the opening of the uh, Russia investigation, where the IG said, yes, there was sufficient factual predication to open it as a full investigation. And there was some dispute about whether there was or was not enough for a full versus a preliminary getting into the weeds. But it is important to know that that is a bedrock principle at the FBI and the Department of Justice about needing that kind of predication, which exists, and I think for very salutary reasons. Everything you're saying, I understand, and I understand the choices made within the Mueller team. I think for me, a frustration is that the Mueller process really sucked a lot of the air out of investigative journalism. There was a lot of energy on this international stuff. And it basically stopped, or I don't want to say completely stopped, but it's hard to think of a major international, you know, the the Times has done remarkable stuff, the Post has done remarkable stuff on domestic issues with Trump. But the company really became an overseas golf course company with sketchy partners. That's what it became. And journalism kind of said, well, I I think they're going to do it. That's oversaying it, but, but not entirely. And then there's really reasonable reasons why the Department of Justice can't do the things. But as a result, at least in my view, there's this big, fat, honking bunch of questions that are really important. We should know the answers to these questions. And if the answer is, no, no, he's good. He actually, you know, he has a brilliant golf plan. Great. We should know that. We should vote on his brilliant golf plan. And I don't know who I'm crying to other than the wilderness, but there's, you can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody else is going to do it. You'd think we'd live in a in a situation where if you run for national office, let alone the presidency, that there should be a disclosure requirement 
but we're not in that system. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah. And given what's going on in Washington, we're not likely to be in that system for quite some time. I just want to end with this note. I do think that there are inherent limitations and there should be inherent limitations just to underscore Andrew's point with relying on criminal investigations and the criminal investigatory process to be the salvation here because it shouldn't be inappropriately so, right? Because the power and the arsenal of a criminal investigatory process should not be utilized in that way. And I I just want to underscore, I don't think that in any way, shape, or form, the special counsel investigation suggested in any way that it was doing this kind of investigatory work. Yeah, I was definitely not blaming you guys. Because there isn't predication. And it's not just that the four corners of the Rod Rosenstein right order precluded us from doing so, but because you need predication and investigatory reporting isn't sufficient for predication and it shouldn't be so, not in a democratic or what remains of a democratic (laughs) polity. And we should be happy about that. It's the fact of the gap and the importance of it that matters, I think. And that on that, we all agree. What this obviously points to is potentially oversight in Congress. But of course, that's a whole checkered and not very likely path itself. Anyway, we are out of time. I wish we ended in a more definitive way, but we certainly plumbed the depths of a continuing important question. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on the Talking Feds channel on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Professor Joshua Tucker about the relationship between the algorithms that Meta Facebook employs and the political polarization in the United States. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate produced by Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers and production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>